Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. friends welcome to another episode of the living open podcast and happy valentine's day i am a soft and mushy and in love person so unfortunately i'm not too cool for valentine's day and i've been obsessed with love um ever since figuring out what being in love actually is so take with that what you will love for everyone you're in relationship with the earth stars whatever it is um I hope you can touch some love today. Today's episode is a really cool one. It's on gender journeys and tarot as support for gender exploration with the gender doula, Eli Lolliet. So Eli uses he, him pronouns, and he's a gender doula supporting folks as they question, explore, and transition their gender. With nearly a decade of experience in trans healthcare research, Eli is familiar with both the practical aspects of transition and the spiritual nature of transcending the force of gender in a hostile world. He views transness and queersness, queersness, (laughs) my god, (laughs) queerness as vectors of spirituality and connection to nature, land, and community. Eli lives on unceded Tongva land, commonly called Los Angeles, with his partner, three cats, one dog, four snakes, and a variety of invertebrates, which reminds me to tell you all, which you probably don't care, but I just adopted a cat with my love, and the cat's name is Shy, and she lives at my house now, and um, it's our first day of being together. She was all cuddly on my lap for the three and a half hour drive home yesterday and then when we got here she has been hiding uh under the couch and under my bed since and she's a little nervous and shy so um that's that but i'm very excited about it and with that brief interlude here is what we talked about in this episode (laughs) we talked about eli's journey with sexuality and gender and spirituality queerness as a dream outside the realm of our existence as kids his work as a gender doula, Tarot's role in his gender journey, what he wants to tell people who are on a gender journey of some kind, why he thinks everyone should go on a gender journey, fluidity and changeability around identity and labels, labels and how they can constrain us, holding our own complications and other people's complications too, transness and queerness as part of spirituality, different timelines for queer and trans people, tarot as support for gender exploration, grief as part of gender and sexuality journeys, and ritual in gender journeys. So I really think this episode is for everyone. I just said it in the list I made, but Eli thinks everyone should go on a gender journey, and I think so too, and I think I'm on a little bit of one now, and I think that's the really cool thing about starting to maybe deconstruct one part of your life or explore something in yourself in one part of yourself or one area of yourself it opens you up to asking a lot of questions about other things and maybe you are still the gender that you were assigned at birth but 
you have intentionality around that and that's something that you are choosing and opting into rather than just like going on just like working with monogamy and sexuality and like all kinds of stuff it's like let's opt in and let's like figure out what actually is true for us and what actually works for us um so yeah i think this episode is for everyone and something else that is for everyone is breathwork for care which is a breathwork Zoom gathering that I'm hosting on March 1st at 6 p.m. Eastern. It'll be my first breathwork class I'm holding publicly since the winter solstice, and I'm teaching a lot less breathwork these days, Um, so come join. I'd love to see you there. It's only $22, it's an hour and 15 minutes long, and it's a space for tending to your soft heart, your tired body, whatever it is you're holding, whatever it is you need to take care, whether it's a cry or fetal position, a yell, a laugh, a deep breath, being seen, words of affirmation, this is a space for you to meet those needs in community breathwork practice virtually and uh, COVID safe, in a COVID safe way. So it's for any folks who are needing to be held and wanting to sink into care at this time. So we'll have space for sharing and connection. We'll do a guided breathwork practice to touch and hold the parts of ourselves that most need care. And there will be some space for journaling slash writing slash art making and reflection or just resting as well. So link is in the description to register. I hope you'll come join and I hope you enjoy this episode with Eli. I always like to start the show by hearing about your journey. So I'd love to hear anything you want to share about your journey with gender, sexuality, spirituality, um, and how it's brought you to this moment. Oh, that's such a good question. I've like, <laughs> my brain is like, because I have so many things to say. <laughs> um, uh, so I was like born in Tulsa, Oklahoma and raised in Southwest Missouri with, in a very conservative Christian family. Um, and so, and actually I start a lot of my sort of introductions with clients that way, because I think that it's such a specific experience, um, and helps people to understand that where I am now is not where I started. Right. Um, but in my family, at least in terms of gender and sexuality, uh, it was very much like not okay to even talk about queerness or, um, certainly not transness. I didn't know about transness till I was in my twenties. Um, the only thing that I knew about queerness growing up is that at one point my mom told me you knew when a man was gay because he looked sick. <laughs> so, cause I mean, this is, you know, during the nineties. Um, so it was not, uh, it was not available to me. Um, And, you know, I think in terms of spirituality, there was a lot of disconnect between me and my family's spirituality and my parents' spirituality. I figured out pretty early on that Christianity wasn't for me, but it took me quite a few years to sort of be able to claim that openly. Um, It would not have been a safe thing for me to say in my family. Um, And so that was, you know, I mean, there was a lot of uh, back and forth wrestling And of course, the like purity culture and sort of uh, gender norms of the church were really damaging and difficult for me as a young person. Um, So when I was in like, you know, in my 20s, I went really hard the other direction. I was like, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything spiritual. Like, I don't need spirituality, whatever. 
Um, and I was sort of like, well, that's fine for other people, but like, it's not for me. Um, and also in my 20s, I discovered that transness was a thing. And I had a very long, basically my whole 20s journey of being like, um, so terrified and questioning everything. And, you know, I mean, I was really, my father was really abusive and it was gender-based violence. And so I was like, oh, this is just my trauma reaction. Like, I'm not actually trans. It's just my trauma reaction. Or like, I've just internalized all this misogyny. And like, that's where these feelings are coming from. Um, and so it was really hard for me to work through those things. And um, eventually I started identifying as non-binary, and for me, that was kind of a refuge um, where I needed like the safety of not saying I was anything in particular <laughs> so that I could figure out what I was or like how I felt. Um, and also during that time, you know, I went back to school. I started studying gender and trans things. Um, and, you know, that kind of led me to back into spirituality because when I went to grad school, <laughs> it was terribly traumatic. And I was like, oh God, I need something. And that's when tarot came into my life. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and then also by that time I had, you know, medically transitioned and I felt really secure in my gender and sexuality, but spiritually and mental health and physical health was just a wreck. Um, and so really the last several years have been a process of me uh, working through chronic illness, working through trauma, engaging in spirituality, and really leaning into that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's so hard to like make it all concise, I guess, um, because it's been such a complex and like intense journey. But that's mm -hmm. kind of like the broad strokes of of what I did. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And it's okay for it not to be compact and to be messy. <laughs> we love a tangent. I always say that on the podcast and. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that um, that it's not so simple <laughs> that it was yeah. complicated and, <laughs> and hard and intense too. I think something that really struck me is you talking about how you grew up and like what you know what you knew about queerness and transness and didn't know. And I feel that so much. It's like I have to pinch myself sometimes still to be like, oh wow, like this thing that I dreamed of having this queer relationship, but thought that's completely impossible. Like, I don't know anyone who's doing that. That's so not allowed. That's beyond anything I could ever fathom and thought would have to stay a dream in my head forever. Like it's real. I have it and it's here and it's so good. <laughs> but still that feeling of like, I have no idea like how that could ever be possible. Cause that is so not something that is in the realm of existence in my life and in my vision um, really hits. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. I think like also just as an adult, as me at this age, going back and realizing some of the emotions and like things that I was going through as a young one were a reflection of me being in a space that had no, no room in it for queerness or transness and like feeling that like I don't belong here and I'm wrong somehow mm -hmm. because nothing in this space reflects me, but not knowing what that meant or how to like engage with it. And then now as an adult, like being like, oh, like it's because I was a little queer trans kid, you know, but I was in this ag aggressively straight, aggressively cis environment that didn't have any space for questioning gender roles, let alone identities, right? 
And, you know, it's just weird, like looking back and being like, oh, that's what that feeling was, you know, at the time I had no way of, of categorizing it. Yeah. I didn't grow up in the Midwest. I grew up in Maryland and then Delaware, but I also grew up in a really Christian family. And hearing you say that what your mom would say about how you could tell if someone was gay, I'm like, oh yeah, my mom, um, gay was like a bad word. If someone said gay, she would be like, shh, don't say that. Mm. Like it was a bad thing to say or to be thinking about. And that's not even from childhood. Like to this day, she acts like that, Um, which is yeah, it's really wild. And I guess I would love if you could share if you want, like, what is the work that you do now as a gender doula? And I don't know, how does that feel? What does that mean to you? Like, I think it's really beautiful. So I would love to hear anything you want to share about that. Yeah, thanks so much for asking. I think like, so I mentioned that grad school was very traumatic for me. Um, I went to PhD because I wanted to make the world a better place for trans people. And I happened to have a set of skills that's really valued in the academy. And I was like, okay, this is my way. Like, this is the strengths that I have and I can use them in the realm of research for better policy and and whatnot. Um, But that space was so traumatic. And I realized like, okay, this isn't it. Like, I can't be in a space where I'm being actively traumatized and be helping a community that's just consistently actively being traumatized. Like it's not a good, um, not a good thing for me personally. Um, And so I was sort of in this like intense, I described it as being like in this intense hanged one energy. Mm -hmm. Um, It was my second year of grad school. I had had this horrible health situation happen. I was doing a lot of healing work and I was just like, I know this isn't it. Um, Or not quite that. I was sort of like, if I want to do this, I need to commit to it in a different level. So I was applying to law school because all my mentors were like, go to law school, go to law school, go to law school. My PhD is from law school. Um, And so they wanted me to get a JD basically. Um, But I was like, okay, I guess people are telling me this is what I'll do. Um, And then I heard on a podcast, um, (laughs) Lindsay Mack's podcast, um, she had Erica Livingston on, uh, who's a full spectrum doula. And Erica was like, you know, it's my personal belief that we need doulas for every threshold of life. Mm -hmm. And it was just like a lightning bolt moment. But I was like, oh, it'd be cool if there was someone who doula trans people. That's a great job for someone who isn't me because I'm going to (laughs) law school, you know. for someone else yeah I'm like man what a bang up idea for someone who isn't me to do Um, (laughs) but at that time because I was on this really intense health journey and chronic illness journey I was doing body work with this um, trans body worker and whenever a lot of the stuff I was doing was around my gut and whenever I would go in and do body work I sort of had this mental image of like walking down steps into like the high priestess uh card so like walking down steps and then seeing like the the place where she sits and like the archway and the pomegranate you know fabric um and kind of opening that fabric and looking out into water um and what i kind of realized is that that was my way of contacting my gut so like looking out into the water was me like looking out into my intuition And every time that I went through that process while working with this body worker, this like gender doula thing would just like come up. 
and it just wouldn't leave me alone. Um, and I had all the like, but, 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 you know, like, oh, but how would I make this work? But I don't know how to run a business, but this is, I'm in a PhD school, you know, like all the things. Um, but it just kept coming up, you know, and it was just like, you know, that little in- intuition thing where it's like, hey, I'm here, you know, like, here's a thought, think about it. Um, so I was in a very hanged one energy that whole year. And finally, I was like, uh, I had a conversation with a professor who was on the job market. And he was very honest with me about what it was like to be a law professor and um, what the job market was like. And I was just like, oh, I don't want any of the life outcomes that I will have if I obtain a JD. And it was just very clear. It was like that hanged one thing where like you're in hanged one, hanged one, hanged one. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom, awareness, you know? <laughs> boom, probably the tower. <laughs> right? <laughs> but damn, here's <laughs> time to like undo your whole life. Like have fun. Um, so I was like, oh, actually like, I like this gender doula thing has been coming up for me and this law school thing is clearly not it. Um, So I got accepted into law school and I was like, sorry, not coming. And that felt really cool. Um, (laughs) I'm like, Oh, you accepted me too bad. (laughs) I don't don't even want you. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I like at that time I started telling people like, this is what I want to do. And um, what was really surprising to me was the number of people who, to my knowledge, were cisgender, who did not identify as trans or even exploring in any way, who came out of the woodwork and were like, oh, like, I want to work with a gender doula, you know? And I was like, oh, this is bigger than, like, my idea of it was like, oh, I'll help trans people in my local community. And as I started to, like, tell people about it, it became clear that this work was so much bigger than a local community. And it was so much bigger than even just people who identify actively as trans. And, um, and actually Erica, I reached out to Erica and was like, I heard you on a podcast help. Um, and she was so sweet and so wonderful. And she and her partner, Aww. Laura, uh, like let me come into their doula mentorship mm-hmm. um, and trained me in like being a doula in the world. And it was They've just been so lovely and so supportive. And yeah, it's it's been quite a journey, but that's kind of how I got started doing this work. And then like actually bringing that into fruition and making it happen, which I've been doing for about two years now, as I finish my PhD, um, has been like a whole other journey. But that was at least how I got started. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I feel like I remember listening to that same podcast episode because I used to listen to Lindsay Mack's podcast a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a very powerful episode. <laughs> yeah. And I think doula work is so beautiful. And one of my best friends is a doula. So yeah, I love all these expansive ways of being a doula. Like obviously like you're doing, I'm like there is a pun in there somewhere that like expansive doula gender. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm wanting to talk more about like gender journeys and all of those things and maybe to start like what what do you want to tell people who are on a gender journey of some kind? Yeah. Oh man, I think the biggest my biggest sort of like gender exploration and journey uh soapbox is that like we don't make enough space for that in this culture. You know, like there's so much 
fear that people experience when they realize that they're questioning their gender or that maybe how they show up in the world isn't in line with their values and how they want to be. And that for so many people, it's such an activating moment. Like, it's like, oh my God, what does this mean? You know, and I think that a lot of people get really interested in identity labels. Like, they're like, oh, now I have to figure out, am I trans? Am I non-binary? Am I this? Am I that? And (laughs) first of all, I think that literally everyone should do a gender journey. Like, I just think that that is an important thing to do. Um, And I really, really think that, like, we would benefit as a culture from normalizing that gender exploration process, like try on new names, try on new pronouns, try on new ways of dressing, try on new ways of just having energy in the world, you know, Um, see what fits with you and with your value system. And like, part of why that's so hard is because it's stigmatized in our culture. And there's this huge deal around like, quote unquote, coming out. Um, that people feel like they're required to like make some big announcement, you know, like this is me now. And then if that ever changes again in the future, then I have to admit I was wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just think that that leads to so much fear and so much um, just struggle around something that could be like really beautiful and freeing and fun. Um, And so I think that that's probably one of my biggest like little uh, platforms that I'm trying to like build on is like, hey, like everyone should like go through this process. Um, it's actually very healing and and nobody fits into any label very well. You know, like labels, in my opinion, should serve you, but you shouldn't ever try to break yourself to fit into a box that doesn't mm. fit you. You know, so like, for example, I use the label male and I use masculine forms of address. I use he, him pronouns. I like being, you know, described publicly in like masculine ways. But like, if we're talking about my actual gender identity, it's so much more complicated, you know? And so the labels of like male or masculine, like don't fit me perfectly, but it's useful enough for me to be like, oh, this is how I identify if I don't want to get into a big conversation with someone because I'm like at the grocery store or something. (laughs) Um, So it's kind of like, you know, hey, if we're having a deep conversation about gender, maybe I'm going to get into all this complication, you know, but for the purposes of the grocery store line, he, him, sir, that's fine, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you want to get all into all the complications, I feel interested. I feel like, and like, you can probably see it on my face, but I feel like I'm in a little gender journey. And I, I think something I'm realizing is like exactly that, which I don't think I realized before just this past year, how complicated and nuanced it is for me too. Like I use she, they pronouns and sometimes she pronouns feel really good. And sometimes I would really only like they pronouns to be used. And sometimes like, I just feel like a person and I don't feel like a woman at all. And then sometimes I'm like, yeah, woman feels fine. And I'm like, how do I explain this in a way? That's like, <laughs> like, these are my pronouns this hour. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's like a lot more I feel like once I open the box, it is a lot more fluid and complicated than what I thought was in there and labels feel weird and confusing and it's more 
changeable. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like one of the things that you sort of hit on there that makes it complicated is this question of how people are referring to you. Um, So like pronouns, right? Because I think it's very natural that a pronoun might feel right in one setting and then like not so great in another one. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things that comes up with my clients a lot is this idea of using different pronouns in different like settings. Um, So for example, I have clients who are like, I'm fine with all pronouns if I'm in a room of trans people, but if I'm in a room of cis people, only they, you know, like Mm -hmm. you must use they to describe me. And I think that it has a lot to do with like, knowing that in one context you're seen you know like you're really deeply seen or at least you can be like people can hold the space for the complexity of your identity whereas in another space it's much less likely that people are going to be able to hold all of that and so you know or that you get that energetic feedback that lets you know that someone's just humoring you you know like those are the kinds of things that make it complicated to use you know, different pronouns in different areas. And so like folks are like, oh, I'm seen by this group. Like they can use whatever pronoun, I don't care. But then like with this group that doesn't see me, I'm going to insist on this pronoun so that I can feel uh, at least like a little bit of empowerment in a situation that's maybe pretty disempowering overall. Yeah, that makes so much sense. That makes me think about how when my partner is trans and non-binary and they were like the first person that I was like, I think maybe I want to like try using they pronouns. Like, and I mean, they're such a safe person for me because they're my partner, but also there's someone who uses they them pronouns and like has that experience and like that I trust so deeply and it feels like so affirming and also like a space where I can play and where I could ask them to use any pronoun that I want or refer to me in any way and they would be so happy and excited to do that so yeah I feel that I love that I'm so glad that that relationship is a place where you can have that expansiveness and that playfulness because I do think that like literally just having a space where you can do that is really vital for gender exploration yeah I think Can we talk about labels a little bit more? I feel like you've just written so many lovely and supportive things about (laughs) using labels and not using labels. (laughs) I'm just wondering if there's anything else coming up for you that you feel like sharing around like having expansiveness beyond labels or yeah, anything like that. Yeah, I think that when it comes to labels, it's so important to remember several things. Um, One being that every label that we're currently using for sex and gender related anything is recent. Um, So, and I could go into a lot of detail, especially about Mm -hmm. trans labels and history, because it's part of what I study. But like, it's just like, all of this stuff is very recent. And if you're in America, a lot of this stuff is very like based in white Western ideas. And so um, let's see. And I want to, I'm sorry, I'm trying to frame this in my head correctly so that I can say it correctly. There are many cultures that have words to describe genders that are not what we would call male and female. Um, and in those cultures, like those words are also associated with roles and people occupy those roles, you know, in that society. In U.S. 
modern white America, it's like every word that we have is an effort to like carve out a space for ourselves. Mm. Um, But the problem is that like these words like male and female or even like straight and any other thing are usually very inadequate, even for the people who roughly do identify with them. And so it's like, well, the the language is already poor and um, not able to accommodate for the complexity of people. And every sort of way that we've tried to make an entrance into that language, uh, be it gay, queer, trans, et cetera, um, has been an intervention on something that's already a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to remind clients that part of the reason why we sometimes struggle with gender um, and sexuality is because there are not spaces carved out in our culture for people who don't sort of identify with like the big binary mainstreams to like thrive and have a space. And so like all the spaces we have, we've made for ourselves. And that's just beautiful. Like it's amazing work that has been done over the decades to make that happen. But it's also like, it's always sort of going to feel like this outsider position and both positive and negative things come from that. So with that said, like any labels are an attempt, right? It's an attempt to capture, but it's not usually like a label can feel very good and comfortable for folks. And that's awesome. I love that. Um, But that doesn't mean it's going to feel good and comfortable forever. Um, And it doesn't mean that many other people are going to find that same level of comfort. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think putting so much weight on these labels and like finding who you are is a mistake. Um, Cause I think it ultimately constrains us a lot. Yeah. And I think it is interesting how other people expect you to always be that self and have that identity, whether it's sexuality or transness or anything else forever. And then it's mm-hmm. like confusing and hard for them when you don't and I'm like who are the labels even for like are they are they for you are they for me like it's a weird thing that like I feel like people want to put us in a little box in their head and be like okay Aaron is this thing now I've got them figured out and that's great and I don't have to think about it again and then I'm like wait but you you might have to think about it again no a few times or a hundred times Exactly. It's really complicated because our brains are like by necessity always categorizing things. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way the brain functions, it's like uh, I have to know if I'm safe or not safe. So I have to find everything's box and put everything in that box so that I can assess mm-hmm. my surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I love that for our brains. I'm glad that they do so much work to take care of us, but being an organism on this planet is much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And so we're always sort of, you know, working in this paradigm of like, you know, what works really well for our brains doesn't actually do a very good job of describing the experience of being a living organism on this planet. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes like we can, sometimes we can even hold our own complication, but have trouble holding other people's complication just Mm because honestly, that's a lot for our brains to do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it's good to be compassionate around this stuff, but also to push back and be like, hey, just because my brain really wants this to be a black and white issue or something with like a really easy framework doesn't mean that that's the reality of it. Yeah. It's like, let's dig in a little bit to a little bit more like honest and true place. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. That makes me think about something you wrote in your bio that I thought was so beautiful. And I was like, oh, I got to ask him about this. (laughs) (laughs) Where you talked about viewing transness and queerness as vectors of spirituality and connection to land and community and nature. Um, Say more, please. I'd like to more. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked about that because this is a topic that's so dear to my heart. And it's like, because there's um, just a limited number of people who do what I do, I do try to keep a lot of my um, content really accessible, regardless of someone's like belief system and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. However, like <laughs> if you're, if we're actually like getting down to like what I really believe, I have a lot of like very esoteric, like spiritual ideas around transness and I love to talk about them. So I'm really glad you asked. Um, like, yes, I want to hear about those. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is a space for that. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Um, but yeah, so I guess like one of the ways that I, see this as I believe that like gender exploration, but especially transition is a very spiritual process. And one of the things that, um, that, you know, that I kind of wish I would have realized a little earlier is that that's like a possibility because to me, it was like all very like social and medical and like the spiritual aspect of it wasn't really integrated in my sort of earlier aspects of my transition. And I think that there is something about crossing the sort of social categories um, from one to another or from one to many that allows you to sort of see behind the curtain in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I like to think of it as like kind of Wizard of Oz moment where you're mm-hmm. like seeing the wizard and you're like, oh, really? Like, that's what that is? Um, I felt a lot of that around uh going on testosterone and feeling in my body what changed. And like some of the things that changed were like very like, oh yeah, of course that's going to change. But then some of it was like really different, like um, your emotions change, how you feel your emotions change and like um, how your brain functions changes. Like it's just very, and it's really hard to talk about those things because there's a lot of cis people who like to take that as like, see, there's a difference between men and women and this is what it is. But like, that's not what it's about. <laughs> um, and so, but I think that going through that process is really unique um, and it allows you insight just even on the social level when people view you as one thing versus when they view you as something else, you learn a lot about the world. And you learn a lot about how people function. And I think that it brings you into that liminal space where spirituality is so potent. And um, and you can sort of see the paths that are not open necessarily to the eyes of other folks. And I think that at least like I like to think that this is part of why um, gender ambiguity or nonconformity has been so associated with different spiritual traditions, you know, sort of going back as far as we have recorded human history. Um, Because I just think that like when you have the opportunity to 
engage in these third spaces or like these alternate spaces, it opens your insight up. One of the ways that I really like to talk about this is in terms of time. So I believe that trans people and queer people operate on like different timelines than cis and straight people. And the part of why sometimes we feel so weird about like timelines and expectations around uh, in our culture is because like those literally don't apply to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so like one way to think about this, uh, Dr. Grace Lavery, uh, she's a professor of English at Berkeley. She wrote about how when she was transitioning, she was, um, you know, an adult and there were women who were older, or sorry, who were younger than her in like earth years, but who were older than her in like trans years. Mm-hmm. And so like those women who were like younger than her became like her mother uh, figures because they were like mothering her through her transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like for a trans person, you might have your age in earth years. You might have your age in years since you transitioned. You might have your a- age, like different ages based on like medical steps or non-medical steps. Um, and you also might have different ages based on like, oh, now I'm going through like my youth or my adolescence, even though I'm like fully an adult in earth years. And so experiencing the world in like five different modes of timelines at once alone sort of like opens your brain and your body up to like all types of different information. And to me, it like opens you up in this way that's very deeply spiritual. Yeah, that feels like it's so connected to tarot, to what you were saying about seeing different paths. I was like, oh, that feels so tarot. And like how you listen to Lindsay Mack's podcast, then I'm sure you're acquainted with the idea of like tarot being spiral time and like all of that. And I think that feels really beautiful and really true and so connected to what you shared. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts around transness in the tarot specifically or tarot as like support around gender exploration? Oh, so many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yes, I definitely like, I really at some point in the future when I at least do a workshop, if not like a full class on tarot and gender, mm. um, because I think that like tarot really helped me um, explore my gender. So I mentioned before, like I identified as non-binary for a time, when I started hormones and I started my medical transition, I really needed to be seen as masculine. Um, so I leaned really hard into masculinity um, as like an aesthetic at that time and also an identity. I really identified strongly as male, um, but I was very dedicated to not being toxically masculine. Love that. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, okay, there's something here that I really, really want but there's many things here that I really don't want. Mm -hmm. And so how do I make that work for me? And to me, that's one of the gifts of being trans um, or like one of the superpowers of being trans is that, you know, if you allow yourself, you have the opportunity to really take stock of what it means to be seen in the world in these different modes of gendered expression and then decide which one of those things you want to hold on to and what you want to like leave behind. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, um, I think especially like cis men don't 
have that. They don't even know it's a possibility for them. And they just think that they have to sort of accept these like really toxic things. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they're usually violently indoctrinated into it. And so I think that there's so much to be learned from trans men and trans masculinity. Um, but one of the things that happened for me as I embarked on my spiritual journey is that I realized that spiritually I am extremely feminine. And that was very confusing for me at first because I was like, oh, but I need so badly to be perceived as masculine. Like, why am I feeling like my spiritual practice is so feminine and in spiritual spaces? Like, I can't tell you how many spiritual spaces I've been in where it's like me and everyone else there is female identified. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. And like recently I've started to see more like non-binary people and female identified people and me, but like definitely there's been more, more than one class where I was like, cool, cool. Like uh, my voice is very different here than most voices. Um, So like I, which I think is beautiful though, like as I was able to sort of let go of my need to be seen as masculine in a spiritual space, I was able to sort of fully claim my own identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of that was done through tarot and uh, and thinking through, actually, I think that the horrible gendered stereotypes of traditional tarot were really helpful for me in this process. <laughs> <laughs> because like learning from Lindsay and sort of learning, leaning into the idea that like you develop your own relationship with tarot and that it doesn't have to sort of, you know, stay in these like, you know, traditional modes helped me to like then open myself up and be like, okay, well, if we're looking at something like the emperor and the empress or, you know, the hierophant or like the queens and the kings, and these have sort of been interpreted in this way that's like very gendered, um, if that's not real or like not accurate, then like how do we engage with the energies of these things, which we've labeled masculine or feminine um, in ways that are not sort of regressive? And, you know, um, that's been a real journey for me. Like, how do you look at a queen and not think of femininity or look at that energy that we've called feminine and actually think about what we're saying when we say feminine? Like, what do we mean when we say a queen has feminine energy? What do we mean when we say the empress has feminine energy? Like, what are we actually talking about? And how much of that is cultural baggage? And how much of it is us trying to articulate something that we're really feeling and noticing about a certain type of energy. Um, So sort of breaking it down to its component parts and then coming up with how I consider those cards to be interpreted and then reading for people, especially I do gender and sexuality tarot readings, mostly just at live events. Um, But when I read for people in that context, looking at what the cards mean in the context of the reading or for that person or what's coming up for me intuitively, all of that has really deepened my experience of gender. Um, And then there are specific cards, like I'm working on this idea, I'm still working on it, but I have this idea of the cups as representative of a gender journey, Mm -hmm. um, mainly because the eight of cups is to me the trans card of the tarot. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I started looking at other like cups around the eight of cups. And I was like, oh, actually this is like this part of gender, like exploration or transition, like, so I'm still like, that's still a fuzzy idea. The Eight of Cups is the 
trans card is totally not fuzzy. I could talk about that, but, uh, can you share cups, more about eight of cups? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So eight of cups, you know, you kind of have this figure on the eight of cups. Who's, uh, moving on a path or like looking toward a path. It's night. So the moon is out. Um, usually there's like some mountains involved and then there's like broken cups, um, in the foreground or in the, in the picture somewhere. So to me, the eight of cups is very much like the moment when you realize that like all the things that you've been doing and even things that have been working aren't working anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's like so relevant in the terms terms of a gender transition because you know like i've had clients that came to me and they're like i was fully comfortable in my masculinity or i was fully comfortable in my femininity and now like i really like i need to take hormones or i need people to use they them pronouns for me and i don't feel like i'm a different person like that person who is fully comfortable is still a part of me but i need to do something else now and i don't know why you know, and so the Eight of Cups is such a great way of, of um, well, let me back up just a little bit. There is a prevailing narrative or has been for a long time, which by the way, came from cis people, that when you transition, the old you, quote unquote, old you has to die or like that that's like some dead version of you, right? And the idea is like you mourn that version or the people around you mourn that version or that person and now you're a new person. Uh, I fully reject that. Um, I don't believe that that makes any sense. And I don't believe that it comes from the lived experience of trans people at all. I think that for most of us, even if you do have a strong need to distance yourself from a previous version of you, which is fully valid, um, all the lessons you learned, all the life that you lived, like all of that is a part of the fabric of your being. And you don't like that doesn't die. It doesn't go anywhere. It's a part of your ongoing experience. And so looking at it more as like, okay, these things might've served me. These things might've helped me. Like these cups were things that I put a lot of effort into or that I really believed in or that I really felt comfortable with or et cetera. Like that can all be there. And it may still be the case that it is now time for you to walk that new path. And if you don't walk that new path, you can't continue to evolve and develop as a human. And so it's that moment where you're like, okay, this new path, even though I can't see around the bend, I can't see what's coming up. I don't know how it's going to work out. You know, things could be hard for me on the other side. All those question marks come up. But you can't stay here with these broken cups. You know, you've got to you've got to keep going, um, even though it's the moon, right? It's the there's less sort of clarity. There's no sort of guarantees, um, and it can be a really intense and difficult questioning period. But it's a necessary movement for you to continue to evolve and grow. Mm, yeah, that makes so much sense, and. As you're talking about this, I'm also wonder. I'm like thinking of the five of cups and also what you just shared about, you know, it's not so simple or clear as like I died and now I'm a different person. <laughs> um, I'm thinking about the grief in the five of cups and grief that I felt just in my journey with my sexuality and the grief wasn't around. I was thrilled that I wasn't actually into cis man. I was like, great, that's fantastic news. But the grief was around like what I knew it would mean. Like I knew it would mean so much pain for myself in my family. I knew it would change some of those relationships 
forever and it has and I knew that there would just be so much to grieve surrounding that and I think that's what really came up around that um and even parts of my identity is like wanting to be like a good kid to my parents or to be seen in a certain way like I knew that stuff was going to crack and fall and there was grief around that and is this a question I don't know I guess like five of cups grief around that (laughs) yeah that's exactly when I tell when I talked about like the gender journey of the cups like the five is a huge part of of that you know um and even like the I've been thinking about this so much lately. So you have like sort of the two of cups is like this, like, you know, communion, this um, social process. You have the three of cups, which again is like very communal community. Um, And then the four is kind of like, okay, like I need to have a boundary. Like maybe, you know, I need some space. Um, And then the five is like grief. And I think about it of, of like this journey exactly of what you're describing where you're sort of like oh like I have this community I have this you know sort of social support structure and then you're like wait but something's wrong like I'm not being and not that the four has to be something's wrong I don't want to like put that on the four of cups but like in this context it's like sort of like oh wait like maybe I need some time to reassess like what's going on here like something you know there needs to be some sort of pause and and rethinking or like questioning and then you get to the five which is exactly what you're describing this like oh my god like I really, I'm going to grieve how my life is going to change or these relationships, you know? And I think that that could be, you could apply it to a lot of different like big shifts in life. Um, But I think that in terms of gender and sexuality specifically, for most of us, those relationships and communities that were maybe a huge part of our young life, um, or in, including families, like they may or may not be able to come with you on the Eight of Cups journey. And that can be, of course, extremely difficult to process and to manage. Um, and so like, I definitely agree with you about the five of cups and like sort of the place and the five of cups having the broken cups and that being echoed on the eight of cups I feel like is a really strong connection yeah and that's exactly it what you just said it's like grief around everyone's not going to be able to go with you as you keep becoming more of who you are like everyone's not going to be able to show up for that version of you that part of you and yeah, that can be really painful. I'm feeling it now with my family and it's deeply painful. And mm. ritual has been really supportive through this process for me and doing like grief rituals specifically, just having space to, yeah, making a container with ritual to like hold that grief. And also at the same time, like I'm holding all of my joy and all of my absolute delight and pleasure in being more and more of myself and having like this beautiful, loving relationship and more queer community and all of that. And like, so it's not like it's all sad, but there is like rituals. Yeah. Being able to hold those, those sad parts. Yeah. Yeah. That's super important. Ritual is so important. I actually have a ritual based on the eight of cups um, Mm -hmm. for people who are transitioning. It's kind of specifically for people who do have at least some community support because it's meant to be a communal ritual. Mm -hmm. Um, But the idea is that everyone involved thinks of something, some aspect of that person that they admire. And then there's a part of the ritual where each person comes to the person and says, I've always admired how you X thing. And I'm looking forward to seeing how, and then saying their new name um, carries this forward into new pronouns future 
right? Um, so the point of this ritual is not only to provide a beautiful source of affirmation for the person, but also to get people in their community accustomed to saying their name and pronoun and saying it publicly. Um, it's, a, in my opinion, a really nice way to sort of get everyone on the same page of like, hey, we're all doing this now. So for families who are supportive, that can be a really beautiful process. For community groups who are supportive, it can be a really beautiful process. Um, but it's often very complicated. Uh, it's not usually that every single person in someone's life is supportive. So it can be complicated with finding the people who are willing to engage that way. That sounds like such a gorgeous ritual with the people who are willing to engage that way. Yeah. Mm. That is so lovely. <laughs> I'm like, how filled up with love people must feel after doing that. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for being here and everything you shared. Um, I want to ask you the last question I always ask on this show, which is just because the name of the podcast is Living Open, what does Living Open mean to you? And yeah, what comes up when you hear that? Yeah, that's so beautiful. I think like for me... It brings up this idea of being willing to live in draft. Um, one of the things that I've sort of been exploring on my personal anti-racism journey is this idea of perfectionism being a white supremacist trait and being willing to be wrong and being willing to be seen as not knowing everything. Um, you know, I mean, in, not only because of my personal trauma, but also because I'm a white person who was raised in this culture, like that is so challenging to me. And there's a level to me when you live openly of acceptance that I'm a human and there will be times that I do and say things that I'm not happy with later. But if I'm going to like live openly in this world, like I have to be willing to be in that mode and so I think to me it's like you know even the things I'm saying in this podcast I'll probably have a different viewpoint on a year from now you know and yet this is going to go out into the world right and so just being willing to like uh be a person and to have self-compassion mm -hmm. um and compassion also for other people who are also going through complicated things um I think that that's a huge part to me about living open mm -hmm love living in draft <laughs> and how beautiful to not wait until you know everything 100% to share your magic because you'll never know everything 100% and then we would never get to hear you on this podcast and that would be a shame <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> can you tell people where they can find you online anything you have coming up that um yeah people can work with you on Absolutely. So my website is thegenderdoula.com. And um, I really uh, encourage folks to sign up for my mailing list there. That's the best way to know about like upcoming classes or um, products that I'm going to be offering and things like that. I also like to put little personal recommendations in there, which is just fun. <laughs> and, um, and blog links. I've uh, this year been working a lot more on my blog. So I've got some stuff up about um, like this idea of trans regret, which we've touched on a little bit in this episode. Um, so folks are welcome to check that out. I also make TikToks and I'm on Instagram. All my handles are the gender doula. Um, and then upcoming this year, uh, a lot of the stuff that I've talked about in this podcast, actually, I'm going to be making a class called Re-Envisioning Gender. And so it's a class that helps folks go through a gender exploration journey. 
Um, and there will be like exercises and prompts and Zoom calls and um, little workbooks and all kinds of stuff. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and I'm also hoping to release some evergreen classes for folks who need help, like deciding if uh, hormone replacement therapy is right for them or if surgery is right for them. So all those things should be coming up in 22, working hard on it, also finishing my dissertation. So that's the caveat. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot going on. (laughs) Uh Just a few things. Just a few things. (laughs) So it takes me a few months, like that's why, but I am working on it. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a joy. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.